This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. It knows what scares you. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. Hello, my name is Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren and Leo, welcome to your Boo Crew Podcast, episode 389. Much apologies on the delayed release this week. But we are back in full effect And wow We have really fun episodes on the way That we are so excited to share with you A bunch of awesome guests and films We've been keeping very busy lately For this one We go back to 1982 And the Toby Hooper classic Poltergeist I had the chance to talk with Oliver Robbins Who at 10 years old Played the role of Robbie Freeling You see, at time of release, Prop Store, who are having their Summer Entertainment Memorabilia Live Auction 2023, June 28th through 30th, are auctioning off the screen-used evil clown doll from the film, and in particular, the sequence where the doll attacks the young boy. Oliver is terrific. He shares his experience working with Toby and Steven Spielberg, fascinating behind-the-scenes stories, and how that adventure inspired him to be a filmmaker today. He's got a really fun independent horror film he wrote, directed, and starred in out now. It's called Celebrity Crush. You can watch it on VOD, including free on Tubi. It's about a former child star getting the attention of an obsessive fan on the convention circuit. Now, the fictional movie Oliver's character stars in, in Celebrity Crush, is a vintage 80s slasher called Chain Face Clown. And Oliver's got great ideas to make that a reality. So let's rally behind Oliver. And whenever there is news or updates, we're definitely going to share that with you. So let's get into it now as we take you to the rooftop of the Peterson Auto Museum in Los Angeles for a chat with Oliver Robbins from Poltergeist. Now slaying. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. All right, everyone. All right. We're really ready to get started here in just a moment. Uh, I'd like to... First, thank everybody for coming out tonight. Uh, this is our second time we've been here at the Peterson Museum. We, it's starting to get warm in LA. It's, it's, uh, it's felt like winter until today. It's still <laughs> a little chilly, but it, it's, it's warming up a little bit. But we want to thank everybody for coming out. We've got uh, a big auction this year, over 1,450 items that are going to be in the auction. We're very excited. Hopefully everybody's gotten a chance to take some pictures out there of some of the items. Uh, we're going to introduce Oliver here in just a second. And just so everybody knows, and once you see Oliver, uh, he is more than happy to take pictures with any of you. We're going to have some picture opportunities inside the pavilion area here uh, where you can get your picture taken with him and his friend, the clown, uh, who is also one of the stars of the auction as well. So let me introduce uh, Trevor Shand. He's going to be hosting tonight. Uh, Trevor is a member of the Boo Crew. Uh, for those that don't know that, it's part of the Bloody Disgusting. He is also on uh, world-famous KROQ. He's been a uh, voice personality over there, has uh, done some writing as well, and is an avid collector of the horror genre. So I think he's more than well qualified to lead us on a discussion about poltergeist, all things horror, and uh, whatever they want to talk about today. Sounds good, man. Take it away, my oh, friend. Take it away. Okay. All right, dude. Thank you so much, Chuck. And to Prop Store for having me. Uh, as you said, I'm a massive fan. As uh, Prop Store has been a, a huge part of my life as a collector for over a decade now, uh, <laughs> helping me to make the seemingly impossible happen, which is an opportunity to connect with the stories 
that have changed and inspired us in extraordinary ways by empowering us as guardians of their legacy. And they act as treasure hunters on a, on a daily basis. It's an extraordinary opportunity that they give us. So as a lover of the horror genre, I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw the cover model of this summer's 2023 EMLA catalog, a screen-matched evil clown from Toby Hooper's 1982 classic, Poltergeist. Written by Steven Spielberg, uh, this film and this clown changed not only horror, but cinema forever, earning multiple Oscar nominations and paved the way for what eventually became the PG-13 rating. Uh, it widened the scope of the traditional uh, haunted house movie for the first time and really ended up putting the malevolence into the young children that were at the center of the movie with these unbelievable characters that, that felt so authentic at the same time. So it's very incredible that we get to have a conversation with one of those very children today. <laughs> so at only 10 years old, Poltergeist was his first feature film role. His brilliant and nuanced performance remains unforgettable. Over those next four years, he appeared in the comedy classic Airplane 2, Richard Lang's Don't Go to Sleep, an episode of The Twilight Zone, and returned for the Oscar-nominated Poltergeist 2, The Other Side. It was then that he shifted his focus to the other side of the camera. When he was 15, wrote, directed, and produced an award-winning movie of his very own. Then off to USC Film School, where he created dozens of industrial short and feature films. He's since done a handful of successfully internationally released teen comedies, completed a screenplay for the Hallmark Channel that made ratings history for the network, and most recently directed and starred in a wickedly fun horror film called Celebrity Crush that you can stream now free on Tubi. It is an absolute honor honor to welcome Oliver Robbins, everybody. <laughs> hey, everyone. It's, it's a pleasure to be here, and it's amazing to make uh, my acquaintance again with my old friend, the clown. And believe it or not, I have not seen that clown literally in 40 years. So, and it looks, and I can tell you right now, it's totally authentic. It's the real deal. It's not a replica. And it was kind of amazing to see that for the first time. And it looks like it was just, you know, like frozen in time. It's amazing to be back here in L.A. and being part of the magic of the city and this weather is just so amazing and I it's just great to be here and talk to you about poltergeist and I'm just so honored that I can be here and I sometimes think you know what would have happened if I wasn't in the film what what would have happened to me and would I be a filmmaker or would I be even sitting right here um, I love making movies now myself and poltergeist was completely inspirational um, and the people on that movie show me how amazing it, the process can be. And we were just such a family when we were making that movie. Um, they made it so easy for me. And I had almost no experience as an actor. I was just a kid. I went on an open call you know, down the street, like in Culver City. And um, I basically got the part because I was Robbie. And everyone talks about the clown doll scene. But we actually shot that. We shot that actually really fast. We, for a studio, we shot it basically in less than a day. Um, and it was really everything that Toby does, everything on Poltergeist was storyboarded out and we just went through the shots really rapidly and um, there was a lot of practical effects in that sequence. Um, there was a lot of reverse acting, like people wonder, they ask, how did the arm reach around you? And you know what it is, every day on that set there was like a challenge and they said, Oliver, for that scene we want you to act backwards and I'm like, what do you mean? And they said, start at the pinnacle of your fear and then have the arm, we're gonna pull the arm away from you, and it's gonna be an in-camera effect, and then the arm's gonna be uh, wrap around you when we play the film forward. So we need you to start at your pinnacle of fear and then be normal. And that's how they did that part of that scene for the clown doll. 
and everything like that. And if you watch the movie, it's lots of little moments. People say, you know, is it hard to act in a horror movie? And, you know, filmmaking is not, it's not like theater where you have to actually be on stage and know all your lines. And I used to forget all my lines and I used to add little my lines. It's all about moments. And that's the thing in that Condal scene. If you watch that sequence, it was so masterfully done because it's, it's magical because each one of those are moments. And that's why it seems totally seamless. And there's really, there's no CGI, there's no digital effects, and it feels so, it feels so real for that very same reason. So anyhow, that's my, uh, that's my take on the Clowndell scene and poltergeist in general. What, did you ever give the clown a name? You know, I never did, too. I just, they just, I just hated that. I was afraid of that clown. I mean, I think, (laughs) (laughs) I really didn't have, I was afraid, as a kid, I was like, I'll tell you this. When I was doing, before I got Poltergeist, it was like this open call. It was just down in Culver City, and they asked me, like, what are you afraid of, Oliver? They didn't tell me the story at all, and during the audition, I said, I'm afraid of trees, I'm afraid of, I'm afraid of clown dolls. And I was, I guess, a living carnation, according to Toby, of, of Robbie Freeling. So when I got that clown doll on the set, I was just, I was actually really scared of him already. I didn't even want to, like, deal with him. And, he, and the way they lit that shot, too, it's like, he's in the shadows. And so I really didn't have to go that far in terms of acting, because I was already afraid of the clown doll as it was. Well, I think it's up to you to, to name it, to actually christen it a name, so whoever brings it home has yeah. something to call it. I think let's call him Bob. Bob. Let's, just, let's say him Bob. Bob the Clown. <laughs> Maybe a tame, a tame name, so he's not as scary, you know. <laughs> but I think no matter what, that clown doll is going to be scary no matter what. If it's in your bedroom at night, and it's like storming outside, and there's lightning or something like that, I, I think that's going to, I'm just painting the picture for you guys when you, <laughs> when you get in your house, and it's sitting there, and it's secretly talking to you, and you think it's saying things to you, you know. Everyone want, every, I know everyone would want that happening, right? <laughs> I had heard a story that you actually got to be put through scream school yes. before you got the role. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. I really never acted before, and it was an open call, and you know, like I said, they asked me all these questions. I was like, like what am I afraid of? So I told them all the things. Like, I was afraid of trees and clown dolls and all these things. So I, then they af- I got through that stage of the audition process, and then they gave me the lines, and I didn't know what I was doing. I was just a kid, and so I was very natural, and that's what they really liked. I felt comfortable, and I credit that to Toby and Steven and Frank Marshall and that whole team because they made me feel so comfortable like on set because I you know I really wasn't a professional actor but going back to audition the one of the key things is that I didn't know how to scream and I they said Oliver we want you to be terrified we want you to scream now and when I tried to scream nothing came out and that was a big concern and Toby Toby took me aside and he said you know Oliver you know um you know the secret to horror movies is the scream I mean that's what you need you need to be able to scream so lo and behold there are teachers in LA that teach you how to scream believe it or not that's that's something they actually have classes (laughs) in screaming so I went to like the the pro scream teacher person out here and she taught me how to scream and it's more about tapping into things inside of yourself you know and just kind of feeling it being so it looks authentic because when you lie on a camera it doesn't seem real it has to come from a a real place so that's kind of what she kind of taught me and I went back in the audition and I screamed and then I uh, I think that was the key that got me the role Hmm. (laughs) and so you got to work with Toby Hooper who was coming off of God Texas Chainsaw Massacre Funhouse Salem's Lot was just released on TV miniseries at the time and you get to work with the great Toby Hooper what was he like to work with in person how did he facilitate your performances he beat me every day and he took a big (laughs) stick no I'm kidding no (laughs) no he was the kindest guy on set you know and he was so calm 
And um, I worked with directors after him when I was a kid, and they used to scream and just bully me, and I freeze up. And Toby knew that in order to get my performance, he had to create a really calm environment on the set and let me just be me as a kid, because I wasn't really acting. I was just being in the moment. I forgot the 100-person the crew was there, and I was just being a child in that moment, and everyone was my family, and that's how I thought of them. So Toby created that kind of environment for me, so I could be that kind of natural. And they were like, you know, I said, you know, I had to hit all the key lines of the story points in the movie. However, he said, you know, just do what you would do as a kid. Say what you'd say. So a lot of those lines in Poltergeist are all ad-libbed. And Heather O'Rourke said the same thing. So we were just a brother and sister. And they sometimes just let the camera roll and let us do things, you know. And some things made in the film and some things do not. But the point is, it was like such a natural, kind environment where we were just a family. And that made it such a wonderful time to do that movie. And then you have Steven Spielberg, who obviously produced and came up with the story. How much of a part of the daily set and filming was he? Steven was there every day, and he was the writer, and he was the producer, too. And I have to really say, I mean, it was truly a collaborative effort, too. And having gone to film school, I mean, that's the way to make a movie, where everyone has their two cents, everyone talks about everything. And I know you have that whole controversy, like, who directed the film? And Toby was the director. Toby told me, you know, what to do on set. But I think, you know, we all talked about everything. It was always Joe Beth, myself, Craig. Even I made suggestions, and we talked about it. But at the end of the day, it was Toby who said, you know, this is what I want you to do, Oliver. And he conveyed his vision of the movie. Um, I wanted to ask about the brutal attack that you get from the wise old tree. Obviously, we mentioned a lot of practical <laughs> effects. That thing roughs you up. I mean, it is a brutal attack. How was that to film? Did you have a stunt double? We actually, I did have a stunt double, but I did a lot of my own stunts on that. And I was like a rough and tumble kid, so I love things like that. You know, um, We had a great stunt coordinator named Glenn Randall, and he just came off Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he was, and I loved, and I saw, I'll tell you the whole story. I saw how I saw Raiders, but that's another story. But he said, Oliver, I really need you to follow everything I tell you because if you don't you can get hurt like they were shooting sugar glass at me so I listened really intently I said you need to cover your eyes and when take your hand away when the glass is gone and they said we need you to position yourself at this point you can't move you have to hit it because otherwise the tree arms are really going to hurt you because I followed all the directions you know, it's such a professional like you know Glenn Randall and Toby telling me what to do and I listened to everyone I never had any problems and I just it was I have to say a pretty intense shoot with everything that was going on because um, you had in all, like multiple pieces of the tree you had one with the arms you had one that was a far shot to make it look as big as it was in the longer lens and then you had you know the one that's swallowing me and the one where they used a stunt double, great little guy, his name was Phoenix, Felix. I forgot his last name, you can look him on IMDb. He was also in a lot of other movies too, and such a gentleman and kind to me. Um, but he did the stunt double piece, where you know the, I think where the root grabs onto the leg and pulls him up. And then when they cut to my reaction shot, that's me. But in that far shot, that's actually Felix, and that is the stunt double. And what did they use to cover you? You're covered in goop oh, from that tree. It was like, <laughs> yeah, I spent, an, <laughs> I spent an entire summer, I think, covered in like this first, this goo. And I got this strange rash from it. And it has nothing to do with the curse, but I got this strange rash from the stuff they were putting on me. So we switched over molasses. And I don't know if you've ever spent any time covered in molasses like every day. It's, and I don't recommend it. Your body temperature actually drops. So, and I couldn't take a shower even after every take, because you know we're shooting, um, so they had to put a floodlight on me, like an HMI light. Well, those are those big lights 
on top of me to keep me warm too because my body temperature actually was dropping. Um, and you know, as a kid, I didn't care. I was just having so much fun. For me, it was like camp. You know, I think as a grown up, you'd be like, oh my god, I don't want to do this. You know, I think it'd be a lot more intense for like Joe Beth. I think Joe Beth went went through hell on that. You know, but um, it's all for the. You know, as I say, life is temporary. Film is forever. Yeah. Speaking of Joe Beth, I mean, you were really the focus of a lot of her tenderness. There's a lot of tender moments between you and her and Craig T. Nelson, obviously. I wanted to kind of know the bond that you established with them as being only 10 years old. There's that scene when the paranormal researchers come over to the house and she's cuddling you on the couch. It feels very real. What, was, what did that feel like as a, as a kid? Well, the thing is, I didn't, you know, like I said, I didn't really have much acting experience. And they expect you when you get to a studio movie to go on set and be ready to go. Um, I didn't know what I was doing, honestly. So Joe Beth really took me aside and was really a maternal figure. Without her, I think I would have been lost on that movie. Like sometimes I didn't get the lines, or I wasn't getting the scene, or it wasn't feeling natural. So we'd step aside and just talk about the movie, talk about the scene together. And she would take me through it, and we'd do something called like an improv, where we'd just act out the scene. And, and then we'd add the dialogue and the moment back in, the crew would come back in. Um, and so she was there for me, and she really was like my mom on that set. And without Joe Beth, who knows what my performance might have been like in Bultergeist. What can you tell us about that scene that you share with your, the guy who plays your father, Craig T. Nelson, when you guys are counting down between the, <laughs> the lightning flashes of the storm? Well, you know, I, I didn't know that technique, that it actually does work. And I've learned, actually, if you count lightning, what we, that scene is actually a true life phenomenon. It actually does work. Um, we just, Craig was such a lighthearted, fun guy. And, you know, and a lot of people don't know, he was a writer before, so he made up a lot of lines, and he felt really comfortable. He made me feel really comfortable, too. And he just, he was a paternal figure. I felt like he was my dad when we were talking about the tree. And honestly, <laughs> I was scared of trees already. So I didn't really, I needed to go that far to reach for that fear of the tree outside. And this tr that, that tree was totally synthetic. You know, it was a synthetic tree they had on the stage at MGM. So, but for me as a kid, it looked completely real. And all those practical effects with the lightning, that was a machine they used. And that, that really scared me, you know. So all those moments when I'm looking at the tree outside and the lightning's going, I was actually, like, really terrified. The Boo Crew will be right back. Tonight, in the funhouse, something waits for Amy. Something deadly. Something evil. <laughs> something that feeds on the flesh of young innocents. Something that tonight will turn the Funhouse into a carnival of terror. The Funhouse, rated R. Children under 17 not admitted without parent. I was always curious about this when everything goes haywire and you're, you're flying in the air basically holding, you're trying to be sucked into yeah. the closet. How did they do that at that time? It was, it was amazing. They were all practical effects. What they did, they had this thing called the gimbal room. And you know the same technique when they have Fred Astaire you know, dancing around the ceiling. They had this room that actually physically turned on its, on its axis. So when the, the camera is pointed this direction, so we're hanging there, so it looks like we're flying through the air. And what they did is they, rotors, they had wires, and then what they said, there's a technique called rotoscoping, where at that time they didn't have CGI or digital, so they actually had to blow up each of the frames and they painted out the wires. So it looked like, of the forced perspective, of the room turned this way, that we're hanging there. 
and then they painted out the wire. So that's how they did that, that is, effect, so, so, too. Is that the same effect when Joe Beth is kind of re- walking up the wall onto the she, ceiling kind well, of thing? For that, she, they're actually rotating the room around. No actually, way. Yeah, actually, I happened to be on set when that was going on. And like they're actually, ro- she's throwing herself around the room, believe it or not. So you kind of, it was a very physical movie, I think, especially for the grown-ups on that film. Oh, I bet. (laughs) Well, besides the clown scenes, after you got a chance to see the movie, I'm assuming as a kid, after it was done, if your parents let you at the time, it gets gets very intense. What were the scenes that scared you while watching it? I, I was scared by everything. I mean, I was scared by the clown doll scene, especially, and because... A lot of people are like, when they, people ask me, were you scared when you were making the film? And actually, you know, I really wasn't that scared making the film because we, I asked Toby, I said, what are we actually like screaming at? And he said, we don't know, uh, but ILM tells us it's going to be the scariest thing you can possibly think of. And what a lot of times our ILM, when we're looking at things fly around, we're just looking at sticks. Like Toby would have the stick and say, follow this around the room. And we'd all talk about what we're terrified of. So when I was only really scared. Until until after I saw the film, when I saw the first when I saw it at MGM, I was I was taken aback by a lot of those scenes that I was actually in, and I didn't really quite know what to expect in terms of what we we're going to see, the effects, and you know the beats in terms of the cutting of it. What did you think the first time you saw uh, Dr. Casey scene when he's ripping his face off in the <laughs> mirror? <laughs> I I thought it was awesome. I mean, I, I, I was, you have to remember, I was 10 years old, and um, I was actually Stephen's hands that were tearing the, um, the doll apart. No way. Yeah, I was Stephen's hands. So they could only do it one time. And I guess Toby and Stephen worked together, and he said, okay, I'm going to have, it only can be done once, because they only had one, and it was, there was no CGI. So that was it. So um, yeah, that was Stephen's pulling the face apart. What would be one of your greatest memories of Stephen? I think, you know, I really fell in love with filmmaking on that set. And I credit with him um, with having me wanting to become a filmmaker. So there was a magic kind of moment. I showed him my little Super 8 movies I started making while we were shooting the movie. And he came to the set one day uh, with a steel silver case. And it turned out to be this Super 8 camera, this fancy, fancy camera called the Bolu 5008S. I remember it. I actually used it at USC years later. Um, and you could do everything with this camera. And he said, okay, I'm, I'm giving you this camera, and I, Oliver, I want you to make films with it. And it was kind of, it was just amazing to have, the, you know, Mr. Spielberg give me this camera that I could make my own films with. And it was just so wonderful. Do you still have it to this day? You know, believe it or not, it got stolen. When I was at no. USC, I know. It's out there somewhere. It's, it is. Um, and I think people know, so maybe it'll end up at auction one day. But I, <laughs> I had the storage unit at USC, and it got broken into, and it was stolen. And it actually had Stephen's notes in it, too, that had it on its stationery. So if it's out there, please return it. Wow. Oh, my gosh. So what would you say would be, as a filmmaker yourself, a piece of advice or something that you learned on that set that you still apply to your own filmmaking to this day? On that set, I think you want to create a very, like, especially working with kids, you want to create a very natural environment, a calm environment. Um, because all filmmaking can be crazy. You know, I don't care what, what level of movie. You're, you could be like a $100 million movie or making a, a, a Super 8 $2,000 movie. It's always going to be crazy. And you don't want to let your actors ever feel that you know, when you're actually shooting something. I think you want to create a calm environment. So, because at the end of the day, they have to feel comfortable enough. Because you know, an actor, it's, you're the most insecure person on the earth. And people don't really think about that. You're taking risks and putting yourself out there for the whole world to possibly see. So you have to make talent feel comfortable enough that they can follow your advice that you're going to do something that actually works 
on screen because you know let's face it whatever better better or worse it's gonna be immortalized forever and it's always gonna be out there so I think as a filmmaker that would be my goal and tell other filmmakers you know keep your problems to yourself the insanity that's always going on in a production don't let the talent ever feel that because it's not going to help you or them in doing what you really want to do. And plus, you know, you want to make a fun set to begin with, and you're all you're doing this supposedly because you all love it so much. How uh, soon after the wrapping of Poltergeist One was there talk of the sequel? Uh, it wasn't until I think we knew after we saw Poltergeist how great it was. I mean, everyone saw it, like this is a, if I say this myself, this is a this is a really good movie. Um, we didn't know. I, we really didn't think about it. For, I think for a couple of years, they really didn't weren't making that many sequels. I think at that point, um, and I was really excited to do that movie because I was in eighth grade in LA here, and I was getting beat up like every day. I'm not kidding. I was bullying. Was awful. So when they gave me the green light, and they said, "Hey, we're going to do a sequel," I got out of school. Had to do school on the set, but I got away from the bullies, and that was just it was just awesome to get to go back to MGM. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> so what was the experience of the aftermath of just being in these films? Is there any amazing opportunities? Are people you've met that, you know, that you'll never forget? And I think just working with that team, that was the zenith of my life, I think. Just showing me how special a production can be, how magical it can possibly be. Mm -hmm. And you have these master filmmakers who honestly make it look really easy because I work with a lot of filmmakers after that who just don't see the vision that these guys had. And, you know, that's one of the things I really learned on Poltergeist mm -hmm. that you really, that's, that's a rare gift that they all had. And, that, and also that, that chemistry between Toby and Steven and the cast, I've, I've rarely seen that. I rarely see that as a filmmaker myself that that really happened on Poltergeist. And I, I admire that and it made me just appreciate even more being part of that whole process. Did you manage to keep anything from your time on the film or any of your other films that you've done? Um, Steve, at the rap party for Poltergeist, um, Steven was really happy with how everything went. And he gave me uh, the Poltergeist clapper, which is the slate. Oh, you know? cool. So he gave me one of them. And it was just awesome that he gave that to me. And he said, and here it is, you know. And he also gave me a remote control Mercedes, a little, this little 450 SL Mercedes, an 82 version. And he said, you know, all, and he sent his little note. He said, keep working hard, and you have a fleet of these. Oh, that's so kind. That's so cool. Yeah. So your filmmaking adventures post-Poltergeist and graduating USC film school. What has that been like? What have you been working on? You know, filmmaking is, I, I've learned, it's, it was a lot easier being a child actor. The filmmaking process, you know, you're in LA, it's a, filmmaking, you have to really love it because getting any project off the ground is incredibly difficult, whether it's small or big, and most of your films might never come to be. So you have to be highly committed. And, you know, I just love it when I get the opportunity to go on set and what I just love more than anything is seeing people, what they think of your movies and the feelings and the emotion they get. And that's why I go to some of these shows and I talk about Poltergeist and I love so much hearing what people think about, you know, Poltergeist and what experience. And for me, that interaction with the audience is, is really powerful. And that's what I really love about filmmaking you know, is that, you know, talking about your movie and getting it out there and having people react to it, you know, and sharing your little piece of yourself because that you put yourself out there every time you do make a film. And talk about a new film that you have recently uh, put out that kind of ties into exactly what you're talking about. 
Well, I made this film called uh, Celebrity Crush, and you can watch it if I push it now, on Tubi and Amazon Prime. It's about this kid who's in this movie from the 1980s, not unlike Poltergeist, so maybe a little more low budget, called Chain Face Clown. And there's this super obsessive fan who just loves this film. Years later, this film's being re-released, and this fan ends up becoming obsessed with the guy who played the little kid in the movie. He ends up, she ends up seducing him, trapping him, living out her pretty much her fantasies with him very um, meta yeah yeah <laughs> so yeah and the movies and so not based on true life or life experience but um, it's kind of a black <laughs> although I've had some crazy experiences and I'm can, sure you can, can guess um, I can tell you more about that later but <laughs> anyhow so yeah it was it was kind of a black comedy horror kind of movie and it was, uh, we shot it in 10 days, and I shot it with my friends from USC, and we had just a great time making it, and you can see it now on uh, Tubi and Amazon Prime and Apple and all those places. Yeah, it's so much fun. I really recommend it. When was the first time you caught wind that Evil Clown was sitting here in LA and <laughs> about I, to be auctioned? You know, I, had a, I have a representative, and he called me up, and he said, these guys would like you to come out and talk to you, but I'm like, what? They're selling what? And I say, yeah, they're selling, the, the, they're auctioning off the clown doll. And I'm like, oh, that's amazing. I haven't seen that in years. I want to see that, you know? So they invited me out and I said, hey, I'll come down and talk about the movie. And I'm, I'm just great to be back in LA to discuss it and see it. And yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing to see this piece of memorabilia that's basically been preserved for 40 years. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. It reminds me how old I am, too. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any first reaction when you saw it and when you walked in and saw it for the first time? Um, I was kind of in shock to see it because, you know, I haven't seen that since I was on set. Did I you mean, think it was destroyed, probably? Or I had, where did it go? I right? always wondered. People always ask me that question, like, where did the clown doll go? I heard, like, there was one at, like, Planet Hollywood or anything like that. But I always wondered, like, where did the actual clown that I used the movie? And lo and behold, it did it still. And I, I just, I thought maybe it got, like you said, I maybe thought it got destroyed. Or I had no idea where it actually went. But lo and behold, it actually does exist and it's here. Wow. And what, what kind of direction did you get as a kid in all the clown scenes? I mean, even going back to when the clown had the happy face. Um, I think I just, I think he, this, I, I was always, I think the interpretation was that I was always afraid of this clown. I was scared of it. Um, and a lot of people ask that question, like, if you're so scared of the clown, why do you have it in your room? But I think as a kid, you always have something in your room. You don't move out. You just accept, and it's there. And, I mean, obviously, I didn't think it was going to end up attacking me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think the, the sense that I was just afraid of this thing, and this is a, you know, and I anticipate this thing could potentially attack me. Because I always thought, maybe in the back of my, my, my mind, this thing could possibly come after me. That's what I was kind of thinking on set, mm. you know? Um, and then lo and behold, that like, worst fear actually does come true, you know? Because as a kid, you actually do think about those things. Like, you, you play it out in your mind. Your imagination takes you to places that you probably wouldn't think about as an adult. Sure. On that note, there is a scene that you share with Beatrice Strait addressing that and addressing ghosts and hauntings. What was your take on that as a kid? You, you were really into that scene, almost feeling like you're, you're, you're taking what she says as, as gospel. Yeah, Beatrice, she was such a lady and a wonderful person, too. Um, I didn't know she won in like, an Academy Award, too. And we just sat and talked about the scene before we even got into dialogue. And then we ran the lines together. Uh, my mom, it was really funny, because I was running the lines with Beatrice, and it felt so natural. My mom thought we were just having a conversation. So she came up to us and started trying to talk to us. I said, Mom, we're, we're running lines, too. Um, I always was afraid. I was afraid of bullies too. So I was always think those scenes. That scene really like rang true to me too. 
and I grew up, I think, in this like haunted house, when, or I thought it was haunted when I was a kid. It was this old townhouse in New York City that we lived in. So I kind of tapped into that. I always thought, you know, there were people walking up the stairs in this old townhouse. So I was always, that kind of always felt very true to me when I said those lines. It came from a real place. Mm. When I was talking about the bullies being there, that, you know, where could they possibly be? And they could, they could be waiting for me. Um, that all really, you know, as a kid, that it wasn't like so far-fetched. It, it all made sense to me. And I think because I felt that way, it came off as true and real in terms of, in terms of my performance. Mm. And what kind of friendship did you uh, develop with Heather O'Rourke? Yeah, we had a real, I mean, she was like my sister. And we hung out, even after the movie was over, we hung out with each other. And we, she was just my friend, and, you know. And she was so smart, too. I mean, this is someone five years old who could take direction and memorize lines, and I don't know how many five-year-olds can really do that. Yeah. Um, it was very rare. She was extremely precocious, and I think she would have gone on to do, you know, her own filmmaking. She talked about who knows what she might have accomplished. But she was so, so bright. Mm-hmm. When was the first time you ended up seeing it? Do you remember? Was there a premiere? How did it go? Um, there actually was no premiere officially for Poltergeist. There was wow. a screening. Yeah, I believe it or not, there was just we just they told us about the screening at MGM and. We went to the showing at MGM and we just watched it there. Huh. Yeah, there wasn't a big to do, you know, yeah. about it too. But oh. it almost didn't matter. I mean, and they start, and then I started seeing the trailers for it, and I was really like an introverted kid. I didn't want to. A lot of people were like, a lot of people act because they want to be famous or something. I actually didn't want to be famous at all. I was, I actually hated the publicity, and I mean, and I hated people like staring at me. And I was a kid. That's like it takes you back. So my, you know, my dad felt so bad for me that he gave me a baseball cap and sunglasses. Just wear this, you'll be okay. So it, was, <laughs> it was great. Has the aftermath is, as far as people's interests and wanting to speak to you about it? Is that something that has been something more recent due to the the rise of conventions, or has that always kind of been in the back of your life? I, you know, this is what I feel. It took time for that to happen because when the movie came out, my parents, you know, our parents um, of Gen X, well, they liked Poltergeist, they liked ET, but they never really, it wasn't true. It didn't come from us, it didn't, it wasn't in a special place for them. Mm. The, the movies almost had to mature. Because it means something to us. And yeah. now they're considered classics. And what we're really realizing is that era of filmmaking in the 80s, there was really a golden age of cinema that we're probably never going to return to in our lifetime. Or at least, I don't want to be pessimistic, but you know, it doesn't seem like those kind of films are going to get made anytime soon. So as, those, as Poltergeist and E.T. and Back to the Future and all those films um, gain traction and, pe- and mean something to them, that's when people started to notice it more. For sure. And, you know, that, and the same with the props and everything like that, because you're getting a little piece of not only movie history, but also something that was meaningful in your life from that point in your life. Mm. And it's that kind of resurgence is, is kind of what Stranger Things and, and things like mm-hmm. that are starting to capture. If you could put your finger on what exactly that is, that magic we're talking about, that Amblin films right. and the E.T. and all that, what, what do you, how would you describe it? I think it's an, an innocence that we want to get back to, um, a playfulness. Um, it comes from a real place. I think all of the Spielberg movies of that era, too, um, came from his heart. Mm-hmm. And I think when you try to manufacture something and you just try to churn it out and it's not authentic, you're going to get something that's not authentic, too. And people are, and audiences are smart. I, I, think, I think studios and a lot of people underestimate um, uh, audiences and the fact that they can really tell, you know, shit from Shinola, so to yeah, speak, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think the Spielberg movies were kind of magical because they tap into all the childhood fantasies and all the things that meant something 
to Stephen when he was growing up. And, you know, um, that's honestly, if you could tap, if you can tap into that, that real place that was Stephen, you know, his kind of filmmaking, you're going to get something that audiences, you know, feel for and it'll have lasting power. Is there one thing in particular that people want to talk to you about when they get a chance to meet you at these conventions? Something you hear a lot. <laughs> um, they want to talk about the curse. <laughs> really? And now, yeah, they're like, oh my God. And you know, it's funny. I'll just address that because everyone's like, oh my God, there's a curse. Um, but there is a, you know, it's like, I think it's just a series of tragic things that have happened that really have really no connection. And, you know, and that's the, that's the horrible thing. And I think the only good thing about the quote unquote curse is that it keeps people talking about poltergeist because you have a lot of young people who haven't even seen the movie but they hear about they're the mythology about, yeah. of it yeah. and they're like okay what a, you know and then they want to see the film and once you sit down and you watch the movie um, you think god this is a really good movie it was interesting it was recently re-released and I was thinking what are young people going to think of this movie that's like 40 years old and I watched it with some young people and they're like they really it held them in the audience I was yeah. amazed that this film this almost half a century old can be that powerful mm-hmm. yeah I mean I remember the first time I saw it it turned me yeah. into a horror fan because it scared me so much <laughs> I spent the rest of my life fascinated by it and why is this scaring me and you know yeah yeah, yeah. well okay well yeah, I mean your chance to own the evil clown from Poltergeist uh, can be yours it's uh, lot 318 on day one of this year's summer EMLA 2023 from Prop Store you can bid now at propstoreauction.com and live here at the Peterson on June 28th one more question before we go what horror movies have you been liking lately or would you consider yourself a horror fan um you know I'm not really into the, the recent horror movies as much though too I mean I'm gonna be honest I love movies like, you know, Exorcist and films along, like, even The Omen. Mm-hmm. I like, and I was just rewatching The Birds, too. I like, a, for me at least, I like a movie that is like a very slow burn. I like to get to, you know, and something I learned at film school at USC, which we don't do as much in terms of filmmaking, take your time and get to know the characters. Just like with Poltergeist. A lot of things really don't happen in Poltergeist for the first 30, 40 minutes. But because you get to know the family and you love the family, then when all the things start happening, then you're really into the characters and the story. So those are the kind of horror movies I like. And like in Exorcist, it's very much the same way, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I, I don't like films that, you know, are just, you know, all about the CGI and effects and the set pieces. Those are all important, but it's, if you don't have a connection with the relation, you know, with the characters, that's all, all that other stuff is pretty much meaningless. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Oliver, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it so much. Such an honor talking to you. It's a pleasure to be here too. And it's exciting to, you know, see the clown doll again too. Very so. cool. So you'll be around for photos after. And if you want to go, go hang out by evil clown and <laughs> take a shot with Oliver, that'd be a once in a lifetime experience, I'm sure. I will be here. All right. Well, I'll throw it back to Chuck now for final remarks and some giveaways. Cool. Thank you, Oliver. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Trevor. That was the Boot Crew Podcast, episode 389. Special thanks to our guest, Oliver Robbins, and the tremendous folks at Prop Store. Production tracks provided by Power Man 5000. Till next time, on behalf of myself, Lauren and Leo, it is the Boot Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting podcast network bye of
Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, home of the Boo Crew, horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, the horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy, or disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.